0: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. He was just on stage at Microsoft's Ignite event. He's going to get on a plane to meet with President Xi. But first, he joins us live on this show in just a couple of minutes. Microsoft's Satya Nadella is here on the big company's big chip announcement. AI, China, China that and much, much more. Speaking of China, we'll get the first live pictures of President Xi and Biden this hour, both countries competing for the global future. And our guest says if you take a clue from recent Xi speeches, a showdown of historic dimensions could be ahead. And he tells Congress how much its laws will cost the country. And with two days until the government runs out of money again, well, maybe now, no longer. Anyway, we'll speak live with CBO director Phil Swagel about what's at stake what needs to change, and whether America can get its fiscal health in order. Let's check on the markets right now. The S&P is now up 2% on this two-day run, adding about a tenth, two-tenths to that today. It's at 45.04, the Dow up a third of a percent, the Nasdaq in in the green but lagging somewhat. Uh, And the S&P is now up almost 10% from its intraday low of 41.03 at the end of October. The Nasdaq is up 10% as well so far in November, some monster moves that we've really seen of late. Yields somewhat rebounding today with the 10-year around 455 after retail sales were a bit better than expected. On that note, take a quick look at shares of Target soaring 17% after their earnings beat this morning, although that was largely driven by cost cuts. Cost controls have been the narrative on Main Street, but it's a different story on K Street. And that's where we start today with America's deficit problem and CBO director Philip Swagel, along with senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Hello to both of you. Steve, kick us off.
1: Yeah, Kelly, I think people need to understand with the stock market so focused on the bond market and the bond market watching the Treasury issuance and deficits, there's no better person to have here than the director of the CBO, Phil Swagel. Phil, thanks for joining us.
2: Steve, thanks so much. It's really a pleasure.
1: So um, I have a, a, a sort of a strange question to start off with here. I, I lost a little bit of hair in the last couple of weeks trying to understand, <laughs> is it a $1.7 trillion deficit or a $2 trillion deficit? When you're at a cocktail party, Phil, which number do you use? Uh, no, it's, it's a
2: complication. What I say is that <laughs> the deficit doubled from $1 trillion in 2022 to two, tri- $2 trillion in 2023. And the complication, as you're hinting at, is that I'm, in, in a sense, setting aside the, the cancellation of student debt. That never happened. And that you know, got booked into the deficit numbers, then unbooked. And um, you know, you it sort it of really confuses the issue. Yeah, so I, that's why I say the deficit doubled from $1 to $2 trillion.
1: Okay, so let's talk about what we call the road to two trillion, because I felt like I turned around. It was one and a half. Then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it was two. And it was in all aspects of government finance. The biggest chunk was revenue. And my question is not what happened with revenue, because we have it on the chart. It went terrible and it was likely capital gains. So my question is, is that are you expecting those lousy revenue numbers to continue?
2: Yeah, that is the, the key question in the near-term deficit outlook. As you said, we had weak revenues, as your chart showed. Um, capital gains looks to have been a big piece of that. We'll learn more over time. We have th- those coming back and, and a more of a traditional relationship between capital gains and, um, and the economy. So it looks like that was a one-off. And there's some, some other one-offs, like the um, employee retention tax credit. Looks like it was a one-off. And some other things that were like one-off revenue weaknesses. Um, uh, so hopefully that, that won't be an issue in the future.
1: All right, but back to the road to $2 trillion. What may not be a one-off is that $177 billion extra we spent in interest payments. I have a little sympathy for you, Phil, which is how do you forecast what interest payments are gonna be when in the last week the ten year is down half a percentage point, it was up to five. What's your forecast for what's gonna to happen to interest expense as a percent of total spending by the government?
2: Uh you know, it's the biggest challenge we face in updating our budget projections. We're at the beginning of that process now, so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to uh, finalize our forecast. The run-up in rates from the three eight that we had a year ago in our forecast to like you know just over four and a half has added over two trillion dollars in net interest outlays to the ten year outlook. If you know interest rates had gone up and you know stayed higher like they were a couple weeks ago, that would be almost an- another trillion. So. Yeah, the kind wow. of week-to-week volatility we have over 10 years with, with a big debt stock makes a really big difference in the fiscal trajectory.
0: And Phil, it's Kelly here, if I could pick up on that. It does look like the projections for the next decade or so show that half of the deficit, which is going to remain wide, would be driven by interest costs. What would the 10-year have to get down to just to pick a figure? Uh, you can use 10 years, use whatever you want. But what do rates have to get down to in order to keep the debt from growing and to keep the deficit from being at historically large proportions.
2: Uh, yeah, I know, Kelly, you put your finger on the, the really difficult part is that, you know, we, we have ri- you know high and rising interest outlays, but then the primary deficit, right, the deficit other than interest payments is also wide. And that, that's the challenge. And even if rates went back down to the, the kind of three 3.8 um, level on the 10-year that we, we thought a year ago, right, that would help. But the deficit would still be wide. We'd still be talking about trillion-dollar deficits, more than 5% of GDP, into the future just because the primary deficit, because, because of everything else. So rates can help, but even low rates by themselves don't um, stabilize the fiscal situation.
1: Phil, you're playing singles here against doubles, I know. So here's from the other side <laughs> now. The um, government—oh, sorry. Moody's just downgraded the outlook for mm-hmm. U.S. debt to negative from stable. I wonder if you could comment on that. Do you see the outlook for U.S. debt as negative?
2: Um, You know, we look at the U.S. economy and see many strengths. Um, You know, a creative place. We have people want to come here. Capital wants to come here. We have growth looking to be pretty reasonable, even as it slows, you know, from the, the very strong growth we had last quarter. So, you know, from CBO perspective, we see many positives in the U.S. The fiscal situation is challenging, and members of Congress, policymakers, the president have to do something o- over time. Um, so it, it's a mixed bag. I understand what Moody's has said. On the other hand, as I you know, look at us over time, I'm still pretty optimistic that, that we will address this fiscal challenge.
1: Well, a, a lot of people don't necessarily share that optimism, especially when they look at Washington. I I know you are employed by the by Congress. You're the congressional, you're the the congressional budget office. But tell us how you view this idea of a possible government shutdown. What does it mean for the economy? What does it mean for government finances?
2: Um, You know, a a shutdown is, is a challenge. It's a challenge for for the government. Um, you know, if it's a, a short-term shutdown, well, that's you know a relatively minor issue for the economy. The longer term is, in some sense, the, the underlying issue that, as you said, Moody's pointed to about what it means about our ability to take on these fiscal challenges. And that, you know, that, that's kind of what, more what I worry about than you know whether or not there'll be a shutdown. It, you know, who knows? It's it's obviously it's, uh, up to the, the Congress and the Senate now to act that would push the decisions on funding the government into January and February. So we might face this situation again. You know, I really look at the long term as the issue, what the fiscal trajectory means more than, you know, whether or not there's a short-term shutdown.
1: Phil, one very, I don't know if it's a small point, but uh, the House just recently passed funding for Israel, and it paid for that by um, taking away funding for additional funding for the IRS. You guys did a report about what happens as a result of spending more on the IRS. Can you tell us what that says? No,
2: no very good, I'd, I'd be happy to. So we look at the different activities of the IRS and we say, well, what's the the ROI, what's the return on investment in a sense of putting additional resources into these various activities of the IRS? So customer service, for example, which the service focused on last year, you know, that's good for taxpayers, it's, you know, it's good for people calling the IRS, it doesn't have a high ROI in terms of revenues coming in. You know, hiring new revenue agents does, but it takes time. It takes years to, to hire them and, and train them. So we allocate the additional uh, resources to all the diff- different activities, and we say there's roughly a two-to-one return on those um, on those funds. But
1: it takes time. So that's over a ten-year perspective. Phil, thanks for joining us, and I guess we'll see you hopefully in a couple of weeks. You have a new budget forecasts coming out, and I'm guessing that's going to be really fun and great news, right?
2: Um, you know, it's a challenging situation, and, um, you know, our next outlook, I, I suspect, will set out th- those challenges.
1: Okay, thanks for joining us, Phil Kelly. Yeah.
0: Diplomatically said. Phil, uh, Phil Swagel with our Steve Leisman. Appreciate you both. Steve, we'll see you tomorrow with Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Very much looking forward to hearing from her course, a lot to talk about with how the Fed interacts with these fiscal dynamics that you just heard about. As mentioned, stocks are coming off a monster couple of weeks. The S&P is up 10% since just the end of October. After yesterday's huge rally, both the semis and the broader tech ETF were at all-time highs. Microsoft hit a new all-time high earlier today as it unveils new AI chips, and we will hear from its CEO Satya Nadella in just a moment. But my next guest warns that both tech and consumer discretionary, the top two performing sectors so far this year, are two expensive, and he favors more defensive groups. Joining me now is Michael Darda, chief economist and macro strategist at Roth MKM. It's good to see you, Mike, and I think this is a good place to start because a lot of people would say these are like the biggest innovations happening in this economy. You don't want to bet against them. How expensive are they with tech in particular?
3: Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. So we have a unique situation now in the sense that the run-up in these two sectors really dominated by, say, six or seven stocks has taken the equity risk premium on those areas into negative territory. And that's you know even with this most recent fall in bond yields. And so there's just really not much cushion there if things start to go wrong. I know a lot of people are excited about AI and a potential significant lift to productivity growth, but let's not what, forget what happened in the late 90s going into the year 2000. Even though the internet revolution was very, very real, we still went through a multi year period of compression in super high P.E. ratio equities. And I don't think it's it's as severe this time. Uh, but if something goes wrong with the business cycle or simply, you know, the valuations have just gotten too rich, then, you know, I think investors that are chasing here could end up um, having having some require- The equity
0: the-, the equity risk premium always makes my head hurt because it's a bit of an inversion. So can you just talk a little bit about that and the significance of it here?
3: Yeah, the so the inverse of the forward PE ratio gives us an earnings yield, and that typically should be higher than the risk free rate that you get on on treasuries. Uh, but in this case, for these two sectors, is actually below that level. So so you know really no margin for error there in terms of things going wrong, whether it be for earnings or the business cycle. And in fact, for the whole S and P five hundred, if you you know if you compare to the T bill, there's a negative equity. Uh, there's a there's a there's also a, ne- a negative equity risk premium so we just don't have much cushion built in here to to markets but especially those high valuation sectors that have been leading the S&P 500 this year
0: would there be any argument for uh high val- you know permanently higher valuations we we've heard some of them i think it, you know again it goes back to maybe innovation or productivity um but those who say well the last time bond yields were here uh, in the early 2000s equity valuations are much lower. Now they say, well, it's a different world now.
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think anytime we have a run like this, you know, you start to have folks arguing that, you know, it's it's different this time and we're gonna sustain super high valuations. But, you know, we haven't repealed the business cycle and we certainly haven't repealed market cycles. I mean, go back to, to last year simply, right? I mean, you know, these two sectors really got slammed hard. Uh, when we unexpectedly went into a, a high inflation environment and, and long-term interest rates started surging with aggressive Fed tightening. So things can change pretty rapidly. I mean, certainly you could make the case that, you know, we're, we're, we're in a, a new era, but when those things start to happen, it it really should make us a bit nervous.
0: The last time you were on, we talked about uh, the potential appeal of utilities, which took off uh, for a a little recent sprint there. Um, What do you do now? I mean, you still favor defensive parts of the market. But what about those who said, well, I've been waiting out in these since January?
3: Yeah, well, it's. Been a you know a rough ride if you've been in the utility stocks for the last year. I mean, they got slammed almost you know thirty percent, but now have had a nice run. Uh, you know, we put out the recommendation on the tenth of October, so it's been the second best performer since then as Treasury yields you know peaked and started to pull back. So I would stick with. I mean, the utilities aren't a super exciting sector, but I think going into a late cycle potential uh, recession scenario that is one sector that that investors can hide out in uh, ditto for health care so even on a normalized basis meaning adjusting for the cycle you have uh, valuations in the teens where you're really paying up 25, 30 on a normalized basis for the, the leading sectors of the S&P right here. And to me, in my mind, I mean, if we're in a late cycle environment, if the recession risk is still there, even though that's not a consensus view now, you know, then I think that there's a pretty compelling case to stick with some of the more defensive areas.
0: And quick final question, what do you see going on with rates? Are you worried at all about what you just heard from Phil Swagel and these, these deficit dynamics? Or do you think that rates will continue to drop from where we are now?
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, having the fiscal deficit ramp up to six to eight percent of GDP in a full employment environment is just totally asinine. So I think anyone should be worried <laughs> about that. But the, you know, the I think the more immediate question is the business cycle, and so you know, you go back a hundred years, sixteen business cycles. There were only two instances where long-term treasury rates actually did not fall from the cycle peak to the to the cycle trough. So, if you believe we're in a late cycle environment, and you're not totally buying into this soft landing story, you know, then I think you can be bullish on the long end of the curve here. But if we're talking about a five or a ten or a twenty-year outlook, I think you know anyone would find that interview that you just did with Steve Leisman. Uh, you know, pretty disturbing.
0: Indeed. Mike, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Michael Darda with Roth MKM. Well, let's head out to Seattle now, where CNBC's John Ford is standing by with Microsoft's chairman and CEO Satya Nadella, fresh off a slurry of a bevy, I should say, of announcements and a stock earlier that was at all-time highs, John.
4: Kelly, thank you. Yeah, Satya, thanks for having me back here in Seattle. You just got off the stage minutes ago.
5: Thank you so much, John, and thanks for coming out here. It's sort of becoming a, a great habit
4: for you to now to be showing up multiple times a year. We love it. <laughs> it is indeed. Well, to talk to you, of course. <laughs> um, big announcements uh, here. A year ago, uh, OpenAI put out ChatGPT, and your stock is up around 50% since then. Uh, what's been the most significant first wave of adoption in AI for you? You talked a lot about co-pilots today. General public and investors probably don't think about those as much, but strategically for you, has that been the most significant? Yeah, I would say both, uh, John.
5: I mean, there are two real breakthroughs in some sense uh, with this generation of AI. One is this natural user interface that, you know, the first time people, really got a sense for it was when ChatGPT launched, right? where there is a complete new way to relate to information, whether it's web information or information inside the enterprise. And that's what we're mainstreaming with our co-pilot approach. And that definitely has caught the imagination. It's becoming the new UI pretty much for everything, or the new agent to both not just get the knowledge, but to act on the knowledge. Mm But the other thing that's also happening is a new reasoning engine. Just like say in the past we thought about databases, we now have a new reasoning capability which is not doing relational algebra but doing neural algebra. Uh, And that, you know, you can take an API and you can continue a a paragraph or you can do summarizations or predictions. That's a new capability. That's gonna change pretty much every software category. So between both of these, you can see a lot more mainstream deployment of AI
4: and the benefits of it, right? Copilot perhaps is a good example of it and that's what I think a lot of people outside of the developer community don't necessarily get is that there's this AI tool that's helping developers to write code uh Jensen Huang we'll talk a little bit he was on stage with you a few minutes ago he was talking about that even accelerating the speed at which NVIDIA is able to innovate what's what's the breakthrough there yeah, I mean, for me even, when I my own confidence about this
5: generation of AI being different is when I first started seeing with I think GPT-3 and 3.5 um, uh, GitHub Copilot. Uh, because that was the first product. In fact, before ChatGPT, we built GitHub Copilot and deployed these models. And the fact that developers now can just do, you know, code completions um, and get you know, and even the, you know, one of the things we've done is we've taken the joy out of some of the software development. Now, we're bringing back the joy, the flow to stay in it, uh, and, it's dry, and it's showing productivity data, which is unlike anything we've seen in the past, right? You're taking the most knowledge work task, which is software development, and seeing 50-plus percent improvement. And so that's what we're trying to replicate with Copilot for the broad knowledge work and information, I mean, frontline work. And, in fact, what Jensen was saying, they're deploying both GitHub Copilot for the developers, but deploying Microsoft Copilot for all the employees at NVIDIA. So he's mm. saying, watch out. Let's
4: Now, NVIDIA, if you think is fast now, let's see what happens in a year from now. So th- there's this scramble happening right now across enterprise software. So many companies I, I'm talking to are trying to add uh, AI into their portfolios, enhance their existing product offerings with it, and then see kind of how much their customers are going to be willing to pay for for that added boost and perhaps productivity. You've been early on this and have some data showing how Microsoft customers feel about you know this AI being built into your software. What are you finding so far? Yeah,
5: it's. It's very, very, very promising. I mean, obviously, the developer one is the one that where we have conclusive, I would say, data, and it's become. it went, went from sort of, oh, well, this is a good idea to mainstream, uh, just like that, because uh, of the obvious uh, benefits, both individually and for organizations. Uh, I do believe like firm level performance, you'll start seeing divergence if you are adopting or not adopting some of this technology. The next place I think is um, even things like customer service. We ourselves deployed uh, our co-pilot for customer service, in fact, for Azure support. You know, it turns out when you're a customer service agent, by the time you're trying to solve a problem, it's already a very hard problem to solve because the automatic bot didn't solve it. It's been escalated to you, so you have an irate customer on one and a tough problem. So, Copilot helping you there is fantastic. But and what, the idea being that the AI can
4: go into the database of the, of the databases, the company, figure out when did they call before, what were their problems, correct, and all the feel-
5: knowledge basis, and bring the sort of the solution to you, so to speak, versus right. you going foraging around it. But here is the interesting thing. We had not realized that it is not just that that was hard, but it is also the pain every customer service agent had of summarizing everything they did to solve the problem at the end of the call, which took like half hour with all the artifacts, the logs, and what have you, and all that's automated, right? So, that's real productivity gain. So, we're seeing massive throughput. Same thing is happening in sales. Same thing is happening in finance. So, broad strokes, I think, you know, in this conference, we are launching all the data we have already with the co-pilot. It's early days, but we're very, very optimistic that this is probably the thing that we've been looking at. In fact, the last time information technology showed up for real in productivity data was when PCs became mainstream in the late 90s and early 2000s, because work and workflow changed. Uh,
4: I hope that that's the same thing that gets replicated in this AI era. Yeah, it's a generation ago. How long do you think before the data is conclusive enough that you'll know on the demand side, the customer benefit side, kind of what the calculation is, and that'll be able to aid your sales effort And and Yeah, it's a great question. In fact, one of the things we are also developing is a bit of a methodology
5: on how do you go about measuring because it's kind of one of the things, right? What's the productivity measures here? By cohort, can you think about some evals, some tasks, uh, and really look at, uh, deploy the software, look at and follow the cohort You know, in a month, in three months, look at your own data. And that's one of the other things that we're realizing is it's like every business is different, every workflow is different, every business process is different, and it's also different in time. And so that's why even having these customization tools, so we're very excited about the Copilot Studio because you need to be able to tailor these experiences for your specific business process needs. And so I think all of these will add up. And I'm hoping that in 24, I, I think of calendar year 24, is the year where we will have, I'll call it classic commercial enterprise deployment and deployment data Hmm. for
4: all of this. Well, I wanted to start there because that's sort of the top line, right? Customer demand, what are the problems that it's solving? But I also want to talk about the bottom line and cost, and that's where some of your chip announcements come in. You talked about Azure Maya, Azure Cobalt, start with Maya, AI Accelerator, ARM-based. This is not competing with NVIDIA necessarily, or Jensen wouldn't have been on stage with you, Um, but running, starting with, you said, Microsoft's own workloads, the the software that, that Microsoft is offering out in the cloud, this is gonna help run that more efficiently. What kind of savings, what kind of efficiency is possible, do you think, with your own designed chip versus what you could get off the shelf? Yeah, I mean, the
5: thing, John, that we are seeing is, as a hyperscaler, uh, you see the workload, and you optimize the workload. That's sort of what one does as a hyperscaler. A like Hyperscaler
4: meaning it's it's you, us. it's Amazon, it's Google. You're you're the cloud. Huge. And you've got billions and billions of dollars spent on these data centers. That's right. I mean, yeah. so even a systems
5: company at this point, I mean, everything from sort of how we source our power to how we think about the data center design, right? The data center is the computer, uh, the cooling in it. Uh, everything is all optimized for a workload. So the fact is, we are now bought. We saw these Training workloads and inference workloads, quite frankly, first, right? We have three, four year advantage uh, of trying to sort of learn everything about this workload. That's kind of to me in a systems uh, business, you have to be early to the next big workload that's going to take over, so to speak. And that's what we got right. And so we've been hard at work on it. Uh, the other thing is, we also, when I think about, you're know, talking about AI. For us, OpenAI's models are the ones that are deployed at scale. Both, obviously, those are the models that we are training uh, at scale and deploying for inference at scale. It's not just a bunch of models, but it's this one model. Mm-hmm. So, we now have a great roadmap for how we think about Maya, how we think about AMD, how we think about NVIDIA, all in our fleet. Like uh, right, right now, as we speak, we have uh, some of the Maya stuff powering GitHub Copilot, for example. So, mm-hmm. you will see us deploy our own accelerators and also to take advantage. I mean, the other announcement today was the AMD announcement. We are going to introduce MI300 uh, into the fleet. It's got some fantastic memory characteristics and memory bandwidth characteristics, which I think are going to make, and GPD4 is already running on it. So, we are excited about obviously our cooperation and partnership, which is deep
4: with NVIDIA, AMD, and our own. Uh, custom chips are the new black, right? Um, <laughs> AWS has Infraresia and Tranium. Um, Google has its TPUs. What does it take to make yours better and get more benefit out of your systems working. Yeah, so I think the way I look at it and say is you don't
5: enter the silicon business just to be in the silicon business. You, I think of the silicon business as a means to an end, which is ultimately delivering a differentiated workload. So for example, that's why I don't even think of the silicon itself, I think about the cooling system. I don't know if you caught that. What we did was we built an entire rack which is liquid cooled for yeah, Maya and yeah. everything, the thermal distribution of that entire rack is very different from a traditional rack guess what, we built it because we can then deploy these in data centers we already have, as mm-hmm. opposed to saying let's wait for the next big data center design which is fully liquid cooled, which by the way is also coming. So that's the level when I think about the advantages uh, we will get is not just going to be about one sort of silicon but it's going to be the entirety of its system optimized for high scale workloads that are deployed broadly mm-hmm. like something like OI,
4: open AI inferencing. Now, let's take a a global perspective. Not long after we're done talking here, you're getting on a plane going to San Francisco. uh, Chinese President Xi is there. He would like access to all of these innovations that Microsoft has been talking about, that Nvidia has been talking about. President Biden says, no. What should happen from here that both allows trade to take place and protects intellectual property?
5: I think that's a great question. I mean, at the end of the day, nation states are the ones who define their policies. I mean, it's clear that uh, the United States has a particular sort of policy decisions that they're making on what it means to both have trade and competition um, and and national security. And so, as the states decide, and in this case, obviously, we are subject to what the USG decides, uh, we will sort of really be compliant with it. And at the same time, Uh, We do have a global supply chain. Uh, The the reality of uh, tech as an industry today is it's globalized. And the question is, how does it sort of reconfigure as all of these new policies and trade restrictions all just play out, Uh, whereas at least for now, Today, the majority of our business is in the United States and in Europe and in the rest of Asia. And so we don't see this as a major, major issue for us, quite frankly, uh, other than any disruption to supply chains. The AI piece. That's right. That's separation. That's right. Because most of our businesses, in fact, a lot of the Chinese multinationals operating outside of China are our bigger AI customers, perhaps. But uh, China is not a market uh, that we are focused on, uh, per se, as
4: domestically. We are mostly focused on uh, the global market, ex-China. For the customers, though, who have to uh, operate in all of these different regions, all these different fields, as a hyperscaler, you've been building out data centers in those places so that you can abide by the rules. Does this friction make it more complicated? Or in a way, does it benefit Microsoft's more diverse global footprint that you have more options to serve customers uh, as these conflicts arise?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think I've always sort of felt that in order to be a global provider of something as critical as compute, um, you just need to localize. Uh, That's why we have more data center regions than anybody else. I always felt that data sovereignty, the legitimate reasons for why any country would want it uh, for their public sector, critical industry was always going to be true. Also, let's not forget the speed of light issues. You need to have a global footprint in order to be able to serve everyone in the world. And so, yes, I think at this point, having invested, having gotten here and now gotten ahead on AI, it's going to work to our competitive advantage. Uh, But I think that this is also about, you know, the maturity that one needs in order to deal with the world as is, as opposed to it's not like we're building one consumer service that's reaching you know two, three billion people. This is about reaching every enterprise, public sector workload uh, in the world with all of the compliance and security needs. And that's a very different business than just having one hit
4: consumer service. Now, it's been about 25 years since Microsoft lost a big-case versus the government, where uh, it looked to some like Microsoft was about to get smaller. And yet we're talking here, Microsoft just won uh, a big legal case where you're getting bigger with the addition of Activision Blizzard. So I guess in a way, uh, congratulations, (laughs) but also there's some work in the AI context here. And now to integrate this, particularly in AI, and you talked about this a little bit on stage What's the challenge of integrating this into Microsoft, into Microsoft, into Azure, into your status as a hyperscaler in a way that you get the full benefit of all of that content of the gaming developer community and of AI?
5: Yeah, I mean, to us, at the end of the day, you know, when I think about AI, it's not about just this as another technology you add on the side it's about sort of changing the nature of every software category right whether it's in gaming uh, whether it is uh, core azure or windows all redefining every software category where ai is going to be core to what we do and the value props uh, we uh, develop the other important consideration is also to not think of safety as something that we do later But to really shift left and really build it in into the core. Like for example, when we think about Copilot, we built all the responsible AI and guardrails right at the very beginning uh, so that when people are deploying, Uh, the co-pilot, they know that they have the best safety around uh, the co-pilot built in. And so these are the things that we are going to do up up and down the stack. And that's why I walked up today, uh, you know, from infrastructure to data to co-pilots. We're thinking of AI as the main thing
4: with safety, as opposed to one more thing. Uh, With the stock recently at all-time highs, uh, Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft. Thanks for joining us here on CNBC. Thank you so much, John. Kelly, back to you.
0: Thank you both very much. Our John Ford speaking with Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft. Let's get some reaction now from Gene Munster, managing partner at Deepwater Asset Management, and of course, CNBC's very own Steve Kovac. Welcome to both of you. Steve, uh, take it away. Knee-jerk reactions here.
6: Yeah, knee-jerk reactions. I mean, there, there are two stories going on here. You have these co-pilot announcements. That's the money coming into Microsoft, right? This is that product they're selling for $30 per user per month. Everyone's curious. It sounds like Satya shared some new data of what they're seeing in these early early days of the sale of Copilot, and, but again, it doesn't really matter right now until we see the results of how that's actually selling, whether or not that productivity boost Nadella was just bragging about actually you know, is worth that cost. Do you know so anyone yet
0: who's worked with it directly? Yeah,
6: and several people. I've, in fact, I was at one of our CNBC events yesterday, and several of the executives at that council yesterday really? are using it and talking about using it and forming policies around it. Huh. So it is something people are testing. They're also working on, like, a cybersecurity version of it as well that will probably come out next year. So there's, we're going to hear Copilot so much from them. So that's the one thing. You know, it's these new features are just kind of, you know, candy on top of this, mm-hmm. the Sunday that they already uh, built. And then you got the Nvidia thing. I'm looking at the chip stocks as we're going through that uh, that interview with Nadella. Qualcomm, Arm, and Intel all up. Hmm. AMD, Nvidia down today. Why? Because AMD and Nvidia are going to be competing with this chip that Microsoft uh, just announced. Now, I know Nadella also said, look, we're going to bring in AMD, we're going to bring in NVIDIA, Jensen Wong might, might have been on stage there. That's all great, but the real concern here is, if you're a Microsoft investor, what is the cost savings here? These NVIDIA chips cost up to 40 grand a pop. I'm sure Microsoft gets a better deal than that, and you need tens of thousands of them in order to do what they need to do with this, uh, these AI large language Not models. Not
0: unrelatedly, Sam Altman had said that the GPT-plus launch, whatever right. they're calling it, they already had to stop accepting new sign Too much capacity, sign-ups. right, It had exactly. been like two
6: days. Exactly, and again, th- that's where the OpenAI thing comes in too because if the- these new chips are going to be powering OpenAI tools as well in the Azure cloud, that's less work for NVIDIA and AMD to potentially do. I think that's why we're seeing it- NVIDIA react the way it's reacting. So the real question is, How much money is Microsoft going to uh, save with this new chip? And, you know, they're not going to divorce themselves from NVIDIA. They're bringing in AMD, but it can help with cost savings. They guided towards some really massive capex for this fiscal year that kind of rattled some people. But that's what it takes to get this done. $2.75 $2.75
0: trillion company. Again, the shares hitting an all-time high earlier today, down about a tenth of a percent. Uh, Gene, what are your thoughts? Uh, Steve mentioned the move in NVIDIA shares. They're down about 2%. And it is interesting to watch him try to toe this line here of, of no, we're not looking to displace you. But, oh, by the way, we might be displacing you a little bit.
7: It was masterful. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it actually reminded me when the iPhone rocker phone uh, or the rocker phone came out from Motorola and Apple event and Apple was secretly building the iPhone. Uh, yes, I, they, they threaded the needle today. Microsoft did in terms of uh, keeping this relationship close with NVIDIA. The reason why they want to keep it close is they want to get access. It's really competitive to get access to these GPUs. It sounds like Microsoft is more focused on the CPU side of this and the accelerator side. So as what's clear is that they still will be doing a lot of business with NVIDIA, but don't, don't bury the headline here. The headline is, is Microsoft and Google and Amazon all want to diversify away from NVIDIA. This is a plus, by the way, uh, for uh, TSM. Uh, we are, Deepwater is a holder of TSM. They're the ones that are building all these chips, but that is one thing that jumped out to me uh, today. And then there was something kind of off on the side that was shiny at the very end that caught my attention, which was related to AI and uh, the metaverse, AI and spatial computing. For those who've been following Microsoft a while, you might remember the product Hololens. It's still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're gonna. Uh, they ended with kind of an, uh, a teaser, inspirational video of basically bringing Copilot to Hololens and showed like industrial technical workers using this. Uh, reminds me of uh, a battle, I think, that's going to set up between Apple with their Vision Pro and what Microsoft's ultimately going to do with HoloLens and and still has a, begs a bigger question, I think, that's in the back of my mind here. It's what's Apple doing related to all these good things that Microsoft is pushing out in AI.
0: Absolutely. And that's one reason why we kind of like watching the market cap, Steve, as these yeah. potentially signal a reversal. And uh, Apple's still about $200 billion advantage. Over Microsoft here. Uh, tweet from Brad Gersner who was following the event as well. Um, and it, this reminds me a little bit of those kind of flagship moments when the first iPhones were announced yeah. or what have you. But he was just saying, look, Copilot is taking aim at enterprise, but also the consumer search as we know it has changed forever. Ten blue links will die a slow death with GPT answers replacing the card catalog. <laughs> and Copilot will be the Microsoft brand in that fight. And so to the point that Gene was just making, Steve they seem to have the clear runaway lead in this. And the only thing I've heard even from Google this week, again, this partnership with Character AI. Right. Um, but this this now feels like today's announcements and everything that the company is doing feels like the leading edge of where this technology is going over the next 10 years. Yeah. I
6: mean, a lot of people outside of Microsoft are telling Bing has been dead since the beginning anyway, who uses Bing? And look, when the Bing chat did come out, there are these you know promise, not promises necessarily, but talk about we're going to grow market share against Google. That never happened. In fact, in some months, they actually lost market share. So that's that's part of it, too. And but look, so, yes, that is true. Search might completely change. And that is an opportunity for Microsoft. That is Google is still behind. If you try to use their barred version of AI search, it's just not good yet. It's not there yet. Uh, Is the Bing one any better? No. But look, they rebranding Copilot. It makes sense. It's it. This is the product that they're selling. There's a co pilot for everything you want to do, whether you're a giant business like NBC Universal and you have a huge workforce that you need to deploy this to, or just an individual user or a student who might need a, a, a lighter version of this Absolutely. product. That's what they're selling. And Gene,
0: I find myself giving in. You know, I, I try to hold out and say, I want to curate my own answers and go through it. And then I'm like, t- you know, talking into the watch or whatever and saying, you know, hey, what do I put the oven on when I'm, you know, making, what was it the other day? Uh, Zuki but, you know, and in other words, I feel myself slipping and that these habits are changing uh, and, and the old search is going away.
7: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, the world of search is going to be different. I'm, I'm in the camp that Google is going to figure this out. They figured out the transition from, mobile to, from desktop to mobile. And I think that they've got a lot coming with Gemini. Uh, we're also investors in, in Google. We think that they're going to make that pivot. And really what it is is about increasing the amount of attention that you have with the platform. Uh, search, it's just gonna be you have a question and uh that question could be about what you're baking, it could be about a destination, yeah. uh, it could be about buying a product. And so I think Google's gonna be able to make that. I think Microsoft's gonna have a great place when it comes to AI long term related to what they're doing with these GPTs and integrating them into uh customized workflows. And I think that's gonna be a business. I think Google's gonna have a great spot around search. I think they're gonna uh both be successful because the punchline here is that this stuff is a big deal, and I don't like uh, big adjectives, and I don't like playing into hype. I, I just want to be uh, judicious at how I think about things, but it's hard not to see how transformative AI is going to be. And credit Microsoft for getting on early.
0: Absolutely. And I keep, I think I need to go back and find the founders of Ask Jeeves and say, how do you you think now? 20 years ahead of your time, but you were right. Thank you both, Steve Kovac, Gene Munster. We appreciate it. Still ahead, Presidents Biden and Xi are moments away from their first face-to-face interaction since their summit in Bali a year ago. We will bring this moment to you live when it happens and look at what to expect from the meeting and from President Xi's dinner tonight with U.S. executives, which will include Microsoft CEO, Nadella. Here's a look at markets as we head to break. Dow's hanging on to a half percent, 155-point gain. S&P's up a quarter percent. It's over 4,500. NASDAQ up a tenth, although it's up 10% already this month. Ten-year note, 455. We're back after this.
8: Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. The United Nations Security Council is expected to... uh Due on a call for an extended humanitarian pauses throughout Gaza, diplomats told Reuters the urgent pauses would last several days and enable aid access. This will be the council's fifth attempt uh, to take action since the war began. The text demands that all sides cooperate with international law and calls for Hamas to release all the hostages. Toyota's next Camry model will be sold as a hybrid-only version, a major shift by the automaker and moving beyond the traditional internal combustion gas-powered engine. Toyota unveiled the redesigned 2025 Camry last night, saying the hybrid-only model is part of a broader strategy to give buyers more choices in green cars. And TikTok will launch a new feature that lets users download their favorite songs from videos directly to Spotify, Amazon Music, or Apple Music. The update comes as the social media platform continues to grow its influence in music's top charts and the discovery, Kelly, of new artists. Back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you.
0: Yes, I'll see you shortly, Tyler Matheson. President Biden said to hold his bilateral meeting with Xi Jinping this afternoon with the APEX Summit in San Francisco underway. It's the first time in six years the Chinese leader has been on U.S. soil. Eamon Javers is there and joins us now with what's at stake, Eamon.
9: Hey there, Kelly. Well, Xi Jinping arrived here in San Francisco late yesterday. This is not an official state visit, though. It's being billed as just a working meeting on the sidelines of the APEX summit here, as you mentioned. For the Chinese side, the optics are important for the domestic audience back home. So even though we will not see the sort of formal pomp and circumstance of a full-dress event, the choreography of what we will see over the next couple of hours has been planned out in minute detail. She wants to send a message to the American business community that his country is open for business and that U.S. CEOs do not need to really worry about the post-pandemic business climate in China. He's going to have a chance to make that case directly to the CEOs tonight at a much-anticipated dinner here in San Francisco, which will also serve to send a message to Washington about the high-powered friends that China has uh, in the United States. On foreign policy, she will want some assurance from Biden that there is no change to the U.S. One China policy in terms of Taiwan. Uh, for Biden, who has said, that the U.S. would help defend Taiwan from a Chinese invasion, that presents a conundrum. His statement at that time angered the Chinese, and it may have uh, to be solved behind closed doors during the course of this meeting, with Biden possibly assuring Xi in private and off camera. We'll get our first indication of how all of this is going when Biden holds a press conference tonight at 7.15 p.m. Eastern. And just one more thing, Kelly. We just learned, they just released the location of where this Biden-Xi meeting is actually going to take place it will be at the lavish filoli historic house and garden in woodside california that's about a half hour south of san francisco so we expect to see those pictures here before too long kelly back over to you
0: amen stay with us but real quickly what's the significance of that site being chosen do you think
9: well, I think uh, when you look at the pictures online, what you see is a, a gorgeous facility. So a great backdrop uh, for a meeting. It's an intimate setting, but it's also outside of San Francisco, uh, some distance away. So there's less likely to be uh, protest activity, other political activity nearby. And from a security perspective, they can probably secure that whole facility, not just one hotel ballroom or one hotel or one city block here in San Francisco. So probably a lot of reasons for that, but the backdrop uh, should look gorgeous here just outside of San Francisco.
0: All right, Amen. stay with us. As I mentioned, positive sentiment has actually been growing around this meeting between the two leaders, with some analysts going so far in the past 24 hours as to say that geopolitical risk premium around China may have collapsed. That also has to do with some developments in the Taiwanese election at the same time. But my next guest isn't so sure. He warns it could all become moot because President Xi has an almost fatalistic conviction that U.S.-China relations are destined to worsen. Joining me now is Fred Kemp. He's president and CEO of the Atlanta Council and a CNBC contributor. I don't want to make you sound too doom and gloom, Fred. I mean, there are you know, but but people do seem suddenly to be thinking, well, maybe the U.S. and China are going to stay economically connected for some time after all.
10: Well, look, in Washington, the pendulum swings so much in, on China relations that you sometimes just have to duck. Uh, and so at one point, China is 10 feet tall and is threatening us at every point. Another point, uh, China is hit peak China, the the economy is slowing 20 uh, percent unemployment, uh, you know, property bubbled, uh, deflationary property bubble. But, but both of these stories are true. So China is weakening economically. China's got really big problems economically. I think that's why Xi Jinping wants to have reduced tensions and a successful summit, as successful as you can have, to stabilize relations. While the U.S. just wants to calm the global situation, uh, with wars in uh, Europe and, and the Middle East. Uh, and what I meant by, uh, you know, the New York Times has unearthed uh, all sorts of speeches uh, uh, of, uh, of President Xi to his party, to his military during the time of Obama when people were trying to repair relations. Uh, and he was talking about, um, uh, in an almost fatalistic way, about a long-term contest for with the United States to see who's going to be the dominant country in the world. And China has been has made no secret that it hopes to be there uh, by 2049 the centennial party uh, and whatever you see in terms of public rhetoric and calming down of tensions there's nothing to show that china has changed that intention at all and and in case and and indeed the way they're arming uh, not arming russia but backing russia Mm -hmm. in in the battle of ukraine the way they've position themselves in the war on the Mideast shows that they really are more in conflict with the United States than, than seeking cooperation.
0: That said, Fred, I also want to ask you about this development in the Taiwanese election over the past 24 hours, where uh, two of the opposition parties have agreed to run a joint campaign that could actually give them a lead over the more independence-minded uh, party. How much of a win is this for China, potentially? Uh, and, and it kind of is a double-edged sword. I mean, it could calm things on the geopolitical front for now, while at the same time increasing the risk of more Chinese intervention in Taiwan in the long run, I would think.
10: Uh, so there's no doubt the President Xi wants to go down in the history books with Mao Zedong and other Chinese leaders as as one of history's greats. And uh, and there's uh, he's also made clear that that happens uh, in in large part by bringing Taiwan back together with China. Uh, he doesn't need to do that militarily. He can do that through many other means. The question is how patient is he uh, and uh, and how many more means can he employ? Obviously domestic politics in Taiwan is one of those means. Uh, and uh, and if he can get Taiwan to move more in a direction uh, of accommodation uh, with China, less in the direction of independence, uh, that certainly takes care of a big domestic problem for President Xi.
0: And Eamon, to bring you back into this, I'm curious about uh, the dynamic with business leaders where after the New York Times reported that for $40,000, you could get, I think, eight seats in the room and a seat at the table with Xi Jinping, we then saw uh, some more hawkish members of Congress criticizing business groups for even offering these kinds of opportunities and warning U.S. businesses not to get too entangled.
9: Boy, if you're an American CEO right now, uh, you're sort of caught in a very tough position ahead of this dinner tonight. I'm gonna be in the room tonight, Kelly, uh, watching sort of the body language between the CEOs uh, and Xi Jinping and and looking to see uh, exactly how close they wanna get both physically and rhetorically to Xi Jinping. But if you're a Tim Cook, for example, uh, and you depend on China for manufacturing and as a base, enormous base of your, your customer base, There's just no choice but to go to an event like this and be very forthright with Xi Jinping. Uh, So I think a lot of CEOs are gonna feel like they have to attend this, they're gonna be uh, attentive to the public relations around it, but it's a difficult position for them to find themselves in. Uh, And they understand there's gonna be some criticism that comes along with that, but it's a business imperative.
0: I can't imagine them also putting themselves in the position of being forthright at at a a dinner like this. I'm glad you'll be there, Eamon, to report back. And, Fred, thank you for your time. Our Eamon Javers, along with Fred Kemp, Atlantic Council's president and CEO. Coming up, names like Novo and Lilly are stealing the spotlight lately, but our strategist says there could be a lot of dry kindling and unexciting big pharma, including one name down 42 percent this year. Tweet me if you think you know our mystery chart at Kelly CNBC. Dow's up 170. We're back after this. Welcome back. That lower CPI report yesterday, a little better uh, PPI report this morning. They certainly have stocks off to the races in believing the Fed is done hiking and that the worst of the inflation problem has passed. But my next guest says the numbers look good, but that's not the real issue. And he's here to explain why he's more cautious than many about stocks and the economy from here. Chris Grisanti is chief equity strategist at MAI. Capital management. Welcome to you. I'll save our little chart reveal for, for just a moment <laughs> from now. Why is good news not so good news as far as you're concerned?
11: Well, you know, to take the Wayne Gretzky line that's been way overused, where is the puck going? I think right now it's flying through this area of soft land and Goldilocks land, but it's on its way to a slower economy. Rates don't peak for good reasons, they, they peak for sad reasons for equity investors, good reasons for bond investors, which is that the economy is slowing, and that will manifest itself, I believe, over the next three to six months.
0: Doesn't everybody know this? I don't understand why the market can just take this and run with it when sure. the history, I mean, if, especially with so much algo-driven trading, don't they look at the history and go, now you normally want to sell the last type."
11: Sure, but even me, who's, who's, who's uh, you know, relatively bearish on the short-term economy, is feeling, wow, I'm missing this train, where sure. things are taking off between, at least now and the end of the year, which, by the way, I think continues. But uh, so folks don't want to miss that. They don't want to end the year poorly. So they want to get on that train. The problem is, where's the train going over the next six to nine months? And, and I think it's, a, it's it's difficult.
0: Let's reveal our mystery Let's chart, which it. everyone seemed to know. But I think Darren C777 got it first. It's Pfizer. And I think there's so much focus on this for a couple of reasons. One, because healthcare was supposed to be one of the safer places to hide this year. That's not really been the case. This is one of the reasons why. And you, oh, you feel a little bad for the company after everything right. it went through with the COVID vaccine. Uh, no no grace period here for its its next big act, which might have to be on the GLIP one front. Um, is this a stock you'd want to own
11: here? I, I think so, Kelly. And, and the reason is... First of all, low expectations. So the virtue of low expectations we've talked about with Verizon. We've talked about with lots of things. And, and so there's a lot of dry kindling there. Second, unexciting as Pfizer is, unexciting might be a good thing going into a slowing economy. And finally, these pharma companies, they have a way over a longer period, maybe one, two, three years, of pulling new drugs out of the hat or making strategic acquisitions. And when you have something at a 10-year low multiple, a 10-year uh, high dividend yield, wow. that, that's kind of an exciting place to be, yeah, exciting being a relative term. So final question then is going to circle back to
0: Microsoft. We sure. kicked off the show hearing from Satya Nadella mm-hmm. um, talking about how it's at more or less an all-time high, and, and their announcements are extremely impressive. It's getting to the point of almost being physics. I don't even understand sure. the, the details of what all they're doing, but they're trying to supplant or NVIDIA, or you know maybe we wouldn't go that far. What would you do with a stock like that that seems to genuinely be at the at the forefront?
11: Well, there's no question that Microsoft is one of the leaders and has made the transition to new technology so many times from the 90s and now to AI. So I would bet on them having said that it's not a cheap stock. It's not reasonably priced right now compared to where it usually is. So I think you could take a deep breath, keep your eye on it, and wait for a better entry opportunity.
0: All right. You're sticking with Verizon?
11: I am sticking with Verizon, still nicely ahead of Tesla. uh, Indeed it
0: is. Indeed it is. Chris, thank you so much. Always good to check in with you. You too, Kelly. We appreciate it today. Chris Grisanti from MAI. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.